Finding God in Unexpected Places. This is the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Here's Jason Elam. Hey everyone, this is Jason. Before we get into the episode this week, I just wanted to invite you to join the Messy Conversations group on Facebook. You know, I've always wanted a place where we can all engage together with the ideas and topics raised on the podcast. So we've started Messy Conversations as a place for the Messy Spirituality podcast community to further engage with those topics, to engage in conversations about deconstruction, reconstruction, and everything in between. For the privacy and safety of everybody involved, it's a closed group. Healthy, respectful debate is, of course, encouraged, but any name-calling, finger-pointing, accusatory, or toxic conversation gets folks bounced from the group. Hopefully, that won't ever be an issue. We really just wanted a place where you can come and tell us what's on your mind as a result of the conversations that we have here on the Messy Spirituality Podcast. You can go to facebook.com slash groups slash messy conversations with an S, it's plural, Messy Conversations, to join the conversation, and I hope to see you there. Josh Rogie is a graduate of Southern New Hampshire University and Ozark Christian College with a bachelor's in creative writing and advanced associates in Christian ministry. He works an ordinary nine-to-five in the telecommunications world while spending all of his other time and energy telling stories that he feels people need to hear. He's the co-host of the Harbor Podcast and the author of his heartbreaking and hopeful book, Shame, an Unconventional Memoir, set to release from choir on February the 4th. I am excited to welcome him to the Messy Spirituality Podcast today. Welcome, Josh Rogie. Thank you so much, Jason. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm thrilled to be on. I'm thrilled to have you. Thanks for coming. Josh, start off by telling us some of your backstory. Were you raised to be a person of faith? Yeah, um, I absolutely was. So I was actually raised in upstate New York by my parents who were themselves raised Mennonite. I'm sure your listeners may be somewhat familiar with that, but it, long story short, it's a very conservative, old school, traditional kind of uh, denomination. And I was raised Mennonite for about the first maybe eight or nine years of my life. And then I, my family, my parents kind of had a falling out with that church. So we went to a very conservative Nazarene church. Uh, the Nazarene denomination has a, a pretty wide spectrum in terms of perhaps their conservative versus liberal affiliations or whatever that may mean. Uh, but the church I went to was really just like a half step away from the Mennonite church I grew up in. And we went to that Mennonite church and, or excuse me, that Nazarene church and ultimately another one once we moved to Colorado. Uh, while I was still in high school. Uh, but all that to say, definitely was raised with faith being a key component to my childhood. And my parents really were intentional about making sure we were frequently at church. And it was going to be uh, you know, something that was, by their intentions at least, to stick with me forever, for sure. So for those who are not f- familiar with the Mennonite Church or the Nazarene Church, tell us about the God you were taught about as a child, what did that God look like? Man, that's, I almost feel like that's a tough question to answer. I, I think it's probably not vastly different from uh, anybody who's been raised in probably any other conservative Christian denomination as well. Uh, it was kind of a blend of like trying to make everything black and white, uh, especially based on whatever the Bible would say. And then the areas where that couldn't be easily achieved, it was kind of just brushed under the rug or suggested that it was black and white, whether it, you know you could biblically argue that or not. It was definitely, I, I don't think it was quite like the fire and brimstone type thing, 
but it was the whole, you know, fire insurance that people would call it where you better make sure you get saved because you don't want to go to hell forever. There wasn't a lot of personal relationship type stuff. Even the times it was brought up with a personal relationship angle, it was still very much kind of like the end goal is really the purpose, not the here and now. So that fire insurance, what did you think it saved you from? Oh, it was definitely, you know, eternal damnation, hell, um, eternal conscious torment would really be the the proper term that I didn't know growing up. The thought would be that sinners, people who were not saved, people who didn't say the sinner's prayer were going to be in hell forever. So it's uh it's pretty motivating to say the sinner's prayer when that's what's at stake or whatever the case may be. Absolutely. I remember the Nazarene church that I quote unquote got saved in. I uh, went to a children's revival and was told if I died on the way home uh, without praying this prayer that I would spend eternity in hell. And who wants to do that? Right. And so I would have prayed whatever that guy told me. I, I mean, and I'm sure they were very well intentioned. It was a very uh, elderly couple that had come just out of a heart full of love for children to hold this little children's revival. But man, that that idea that God has has it out for everyone and you need to be protected from God can have some pretty deep psychological impact. What did faith in that kind of God do to you as a child? I, I think when that is the perspective and that's the angle, it's really hard not to think of yourself constantly as a, a failure or a sinner. It's a standard that you know, nobody short of Jesus could uphold. So I would constantly feel like I would need to pray to ask for forgiveness again and again and again. I remember, you know, especially in high school, as I was getting close to adulthood and maturity, but, but still not quite there yet, that I would, our church did altar calls, which maybe you're familiar with, where pretty much every Sunday sermon. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It was a weekly occurrence. Some some denominations don't do it as often or whatever, but it was a weekly occurrence where the end of the sermon, the pastor is going to ask if anybody wants to come down and pray at the, the altar near the front. And I would say I participated in maybe 50% of them at one point, just every week, I was every other week, whatever. I was like, I need to get saved because I did a lot of bad shit this week. And it was it was typical <laughs> high school stuff. It's exhausting getting saved that often, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, it absolutely is. <laughs> and, and especially, like, I don't think that's healthy maybe for anybody. But like I said, it was typical wow. high school stuff. It wasn't even like, I don't know. I didn't I didn't do anything extreme that anybody, you know, in my, in my current environment would think is that extraordinary. But yeah, I mean, it, it's just hard to have a personal relationship with God or, or even really with the community around you when you think that any little thing that you could do could send you to hell. Well, let's take a little rabbit trail. You mentioned Jesus a minute ago as being the only one who could live up to the standard. Did you see Jesus as very different from God, the Father? I think as a child growing up in that environment— it's kind of sad to say this, but I don't really remember talking about Jesus a ton. Um, most of the stories, you know, it was like the 90s Sunday school thing where they're trying to cutesy up Noah's Ark and the creation story and just whatever has like animals in it or seems interesting to an eight-year-old is going to be their, the focus. I don't really remember hearing a lot about Jesus until I was close to uh, probably like 
10 to 12 years old or something like that. And at that point, it was really still just the two bookend stories, so to speak, with the the birth and the Virgin Mary and all of that. And then the, you know, the the crucifixion and resurrection to, you know, save us of our sins. So all that to say, I didn't really have a, a thorough understanding of Jesus and his teachings and the way that that was the the potential contradictions that brings up with the Old Testament that a lot of us wrestled with, you know, when we started the deconstruction process later in life. So as a kid, I would say I didn't really even know enough about him to know there was a difference, but that is definitely one of the threads that started to unravel the later I got into my faith for sure. Josh, a lot of us go through a crisis point that kind of necessitates a rethinking of our faith, commonly referred to as deconstruction, I guess now. Did you have a crisis like that? And if so, what was it? You know, I don't think I had like one singular moment that I could pinpoint. I I think probably the moment that started the process for me, I think it would be when I was in my early 20s and, you know, my whole life I was kind of raised in that purity culture type perspective where, you know, you need to save yourself until marriage. And if you do that, you know, your relationship with your spouse will be pure and all of that. And I I lost my virginity or whatever phrasing you want to use. I had sex with a, a woman I wasn't married with and I was 21 or something like that. It, I took my time. I did what I was supposed to do. And uh, eventually just, I was like, man, I think she's the one. And we don't have to get into the gritty details of that at the moment. But the idea was is that it seemed like it was the right, right time for our relationship. And then when that relationship failed, it was uh, a moment of, okay, so now I am impure. I am incapable of achieving what I was told was necessary for this life. And I think that really started to get me to really question how I actually felt about God rather than leaning on the, you know, tried and true, so to speak, phrases that were given to me as a, as a child and into young adulthood. Uh, so it, it started out probably there. And then really, as I went through that process and realized that I, I didn't think God hated me or would send me to hell for such a reason as that. Uh, it really started to, you know, unravel all the other threads as well. I, I had the, you know, good fortune of becoming close friends with a, a gay friend. And up to that point, I was definitely taught that that's a black and white issue. It's nothing more than an issue and it's only black and white. And somebody who's gay, unfortunately, they're they're out. And just getting to know somebody like that. Um, he was a wonderful person and it was obvious that anybody who thought that he could be judged based on that, uh, didn't hold up to my standards of, of what I expected out of God. Um, so it, it was kind of like a cascading effect at that point when the failed relationship happened, I'm having, you know, friendship with somebody who's outside of what I was taught was acceptable and it just continued from there. It, it got me into reading things like Love Wins and, you know, all these other books that, at least for me, were were very revolutionary at the time. Did you get a lot of pushback when you started reading folks like Rob Bell? Oh, yeah. Um, I was going to the Bible college at the time and uh, definitely a, a more conservative area in the Bible Belt in Missouri. And I mean, I guess... 
I, I wasn't super close with a lot of people on campus, so I didn't have somebody like nagging me all the time. But I definitely had classmates and people telling me how just ridiculous it is that I'm reading this book and, and that nothing good can come of it. And um, I actually had a classmate try to convince me that, you know, his you know, one semester of ancient Greek made him an expert and he knew more Greek than Rob Bell and just absurd things like that, where, you know, they were definitely a couple people at least were concerned for me and thinking I was doing this ultra dangerous thing. To be fair, they, they at least face to face, they were not extremely judgmental so much as more, I think they were genuinely trying to help me, but I think maybe they were also a little worried that what I perceived as their house of cards might fall through that. So was the restructuring of your faith or the rethinking through of your faith, was that traumatic for you or was it a relief to you? I feel like I'm still in process, honestly, Jason. Um, different stretches, It's it's been either or, really. I mean, there's definitely when I went through this back in, you know, maybe about 10 years ago when this all kind of started, you know, that, that failed relationship I referenced, it obviously that was very painful. But then as it was redefining my faith, I really was coming to a place of, you know, genuine faith, my own, I was owning it. And I I would say that I was very, very happy. And the further I got into deconstruction, it started getting into some uncomfortable questions. Like the thing I've been struggling with perhaps lately is, is what to do with the afterlife. Do I believe in a, you know, biblical heaven? Is there some sort of redefinition of what that looks like? Or is it possible that, you know, the heaven thing was all purely a metaphor and, and the afterlife isn't at all what I expect. Maybe it's nothing at all. Um, I would say that at this moment with that particular conversation, it almost creates more anxiety than I ever had about hell. I, I never really thought I would go to hell even when I thought eternal conscious torment was the thing. I felt as if I was secure. So I'm still learning. I'm still struggling with that. And I I think that's actually kind of the point and that's okay. But it's certainly something that, you know, some days I wish that I could put the the toothpaste back in the tube, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. I, I know that feeling really well. Tell me about the God that you believe in today. What is the character of the God you've come to know? I would say, I mean, part of the place that I've gotten to with God is to respect and understand that there's an element of mystery there, that I don't at all believe that you can ever know every single aspect of God. And I think that's a really beautiful thing. As I said, I was raised in such a black and white type system that I always, it was a a crutch really. And and anytime anything uncomfortable came up, that's kind of what started this whole thing. Nowadays, there still might be times of discomfort, but it it's a better place to be and to understand that there's more to learn. And it actually has created more excitement in me as well to, to realize I don't have this all figured out. All that to say, I would say some of the key characteristics that you know, I'm, I'm able to lean on during those times of discomfort is, is I really believe that you know, God is the ultimate source of love. Um, there are other aspects to you know, what God is like, whether it's you know, justice or um, righting the wrong, so to speak. But I feel like it all comes down to love. And if it doesn't trace back to love, then I think we have to question if that really is God or not. How did coming to view God as a God of love change how you viewed yourself? 
Yeah, that's that's a great point. And that's one that I, I kind of realized through throughout this is that how can how can I view God as, you know, somebody who is going to love me if I can't love myself? So it really it it kind of got me away from that perspective of, you know, I'm the worst, I am the this awful person, I'm a failure through and through. And it helped me to understand that, well, if God's going to love me and and really I think God wants me to love myself, why why wouldn't I try to redefine how I look at myself? It really allowed me to create more grace, even for for my own, you know, introspective viewpoint. And then ultimately that that really I, I guess really I, I would say I loved other people first before loving myself. And the more that I realized that that's ultimately what the church community should look like, what the, the Christian community should look like, that really opened my eyes to allow me to see myself in a new light. Yeah, I know for me, it was more of a, uh, I know I'm supposed to love people, but I felt so bad about who I was that it was an act. But when I discovered that God really did love me the way I was and that it was okay for me to be okay with not being okay all the time, it made it, it made it a lot easier to love people. It wasn't an act anymore. Um, you know, you see everybody as just like an equal partner in that quest for grace, uh, that we all have a need for love and, and compassion from one another. And when you don't think the deck is stacked against you, as in hell is the default setting, and you don't feel the need to get saved every week, <laughs> man, it takes a whole lot of pressure off, makes it a lot easier to love people. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I would say it even, it, it makes it a lot easier to find real happiness as well, you know, when you're so focused. And, and I think that the things that we're talking about, Christianity, obviously, I'm, I'm here to talk about those things. Those are very important things, maybe the most important in a sense. But I think that we can get so rigid about these things and so intense about them that we we kind of miss out on the day-to-day minute-to-minute joys of of living you know absolutely so heavenly minded we're no earthly good yeah hey i loved your book shame and unconventional memoir now writing a book is no easy task i've been trying to do it for over a year <laughs> so what motivated you to do the hard work of writing this book yeah, that's kind of a funny story, at least from from my perspective. Um, when I first started writing it, um, I originally was just thinking, like, maybe I'll start a blog or something like that. And I was kind of just, I guess, with the content I was digesting from other podcasts and stuff like that, I was at a point where I was just fed up with, uh, I guess I'm going to say, quote, famous Christians, whether you're talking about well-known pastors, writers, etc., cetera, uh, that were, they seem to be so like, focused on image management where they weren't, you could tell that they were intentionally hiding things because they wanted to look pious or they thought that was vital to their leadership style or whatever the case may be. So I was like, man, it would be so interesting if somebody, I'm not famous at all, I'm, or a pastor for that matter, but it'd be interesting if somebody just came out and was like, hey, I'm going to tell you all the bad shit I've done first. Let's get that out of the way so that you know the the true me and there's no question about my motives about hiding this or that. And so I was like, I'll, I'll do this thing where I'm just going to write about all these awful things that I've done. And then as I started writing a, about my story, I, I realized that a, a lot of the quote awful things I had done were more things that were done to me and had left scars and made me feel shamed, made me feel you know less than than my true value. 
Uh, so that kind of reshaped what I was doing. And, and I really wanted to uh, change the focus a little bit to be more on, you know, sharing, sharing those feelings first off to process it myself, because I'd, some of those things I had never even really processed. And then also to, to be able to share it with the world so that anybody who's reading it can say, okay, maybe these details are slightly different than what I experienced, but I, I went through that too. I went through, you know, bullying in, in middle school, or I, you know, I went through this sexual shame I was experiencing in my twenties. And, and I really felt as if that could be a value to, to somebody who's maybe in the church right now, who, whether they're a leader or, you know, somebody in the pews or whatever the case may be, uh, just for them not to feel alone. Well, and I, I think that your book is really good as well for people who really don't have any, don't see any value in church. A lot of the people that I know who are the nuns and the duns who have walked away from institutional Christianity, it's because they don't see the transparency that you demonstrate in this book. And so, I, hey, I think the book is fantastic for everybody. I hope everybody will get a copy of it. We're going to put a link to it in the show notes uh, of this episode. But let's talk about that shame. When uh, do you do you remember when shame first entered your life? Do you remember when you first felt ashamed? I think I could pick out like individual moments. Like you know, I, I write in the book at one point. Uh, it's probably one of my first forays into feeling anxiety uh, where I was, you know, in like third or fourth grade, and uh, the the night before a big assignment was to be turned in. Again, this was fourth grade. I can't imagine how big of an assignment I thought this was versus reality. Uh, <laughs> it felt big at the time. Yeah. Yeah. It, it seemed like a make or break thing. Like either I'm going to pass this and get to move on to fifth grade or I'm going to fail and you know, all my friends will move on without me. And I, I definitely, I, I felt such a high level of anxiety that I, I felt shame in who I was. Like there must be something wrong with me that, that I'm, I'm feeling this way. I don't think that that at that moment was a like a, a status I would consider myself or whatever. Like it wasn't something that was informing my day to day. I would say that you know once you get into high school and you're dealing with all the the shifting hormones and all that and the uncertainty around you know how I felt about the the afterlife and. Uh, again, I, I felt pretty locked in saving myself every week or, or asking for saving every week. But even so, I definitely still had this sense of like, well, why do I keep messing up so much that I need to be here every week? So I would say probably high school is where it, it became more apparent that I was feeling this way somewhat continually. What implications did that shame have for you? How did it change you and your behavior during that time of your life? I mean, you overthink everything at that point, really. Like you can't, you can't function in such a way that again, you're really enjoying life. You know, um, I, I feel like there is a lot of stuff that I wish I would have been more present for. I still had a good school experience, but you start to think about your future in the same way you're thinking about five minutes ago, like I'm, I'm trying to do whatever I can not to mess up. So it, it really is kind of this, this limiting thing. And in some ways, I think that is by design. I think that like the culture I was brought up in had maybe a good intention of trying to create boundaries for somebody who is in high school to make sure that I don't 
you know, make decisions that are going to scar me for years, but it has this unintended side effect of maybe they swung the pendulum too hard the other direction. And suddenly I, I'm trying to figure out like God's purpose for my life for every moment of the future. And it just makes you feel as if you can't ever quite figure it out. I know one of the worst parts of shame in my life was the fact that it kept me so isolated. You feel like there's some this part of yourself that you have to hide from everyone around, that if they really knew the real you, they would reject you. And, and you're trying to protect yourself with that, obviously, but it, it keeps you so isolated and alone. And, and it makes it impossible for you to feel loved because nobody knows you. You don't give them the opportunity to love the real you. So how do we find our way out of shame, Josh? Yeah, that's uh, another, I guess, concept I had as I was starting to write this book, because you're exactly right. I, you know, especially during the teenage years into the college years and and maybe even a little bit past that, I, I felt as if I must be alone in these things. And I decided that, you know, well, it all started really with a story of one of my friends, which I, I did put this in the book as well, where he, this was way back in the MySpace days before Facebook, but he had a, a blog post on there where he was talking about his porn addiction. And and basically he was like saying himself that he was ashamed about it and that he was in a position where he realized that he could not overcome this by himself. And he was basically, it was like a, a call for accountability, I guess you would say. And I had a couple thoughts while I was reading this and, and really in my, you know, early twenties, as I'm sitting at a computer, I'm like, why are you telling people this? This is so embarrassing. And and I, I wasn't really necessarily judgmental of him. I guess I was. But the way that was manifesting was that I was actually concerned that people would look down on him. And at the same effect, I was kind of like, this is an interesting thing he's doing, though. And uh, especially considering he was one of my best friends, I was amazed that I didn't already know this about him. And that kind of you know, brought into the scope here, what exactly shame does. Like you were saying, it it isolates you so much that you find yourself un, unwilling or unable to to share it with the people who will be able to help you. And that's really the how you find freedom from this. That's that's why I wrote the book. Ultimately, was I used that as kind of a template of okay, so I'm going to do this with all the elements of my life that have created shame. I'm going to share them with the world. I'm going to share them with my wife, uh, who really helped me along the way while I was writing this book over the last couple of years. I'm going to share them with my community. And, and the more that I shared, it's scary as it first was, it kind of became a little easier and easier. Now, the book hasn't come out yet, so we'll see <laughs> what my perspective is once that comes out. But, uh, you know, sharing it with my beta readers and, and you know, People such as you, Jason, and, and even my, my parents recently read it for the first time just in the last couple of weeks. And every step of the way, I kind of had another level of, of anxiety about how people would respond. And every single time, you know, they've responded with grace and care. And they themselves many times have come back and said, you know, that really opened my eyes to this thing that I experienced traumatic feelings about. And and they would share with me or with you know their own community. And it's really been a blessing in that way. So when you're writing the book, did you have a specific audience in mind? Who did you write the book for? And what do you hope they take away from it? 
Yeah. Um, honestly, I really, I feel like I, I wrote the book for anybody who has experienced shame or embarrassment or guilt, uh, especially to perhaps a debilitating degree, but especially anybody who can trace it back to their, their feelings about whether it's religion or spirituality or, you know, especially Christianity. But I really designed it in a way that I, I want it to be for anybody who's, who's had any shame in their life. I try not to get overly preachy, even though there's no doubt that that Christianity, you know, influenced the way that I process these things. And I'm hopeful that it'll find that audience and that people will gain that freedom from that, you know, that they that they will be able to share with their friends or free family or, or whatever the case. Hell, if you don't have somebody you can share with, you can contact me on Facebook and I'll, I love listening and hear pe- hearing people's stories. So uh, it's really designed for anybody who's gone through this type of scarring experience. And um, I, I hope that they can just see that it, it may seem a little scary at first, but that's ultimately how you're going to get out of this cycle of of just constantly feeling isolated. There's nothing that you can, there's nothing that you've done that can rule out what you're capable of being in the future. You know, the grace of God is such that it, it's able to overcome whatever you are ashamed about, whatever you are guilted by. Absolutely. It seems like uh, nobody should be defined for the rest of their life. Nobody should be branded by the biggest mistakes of their life. But shame keeps us hidden out of fear that someone's going to learn about those mistakes or what would they know if they knew. And stepping into the light, there's just so much freedom there. And yes, exposure may hurt. It may cause a season of suffering, but in the end, that's the greatest blessing is just to be accepted for who you really are. And uh, I'm so glad that you've written this book and encouraged people to speak out and, and to leave the prison of shame. Hey, another thing that I love is that you've included a soundtrack in your book. Uh, each chapter has a song that goes with it. And then at the end, you kind of list the whole soundtrack. How did you get the idea to do that? I love it. Yeah. So I have always been, I've had a, a personal connection with music where music has just always spoken to me so much. I even, you know, I talk, I joke about in the book that this is not necessarily a moment of shame, but I always, you know, growing up, I wanted to be a, a Christian rapper. I, w- I was inspired by DC talk of all things, which is kind of, I guess that's a little embarrassing now, but only in a funny way. And uh, I, you know, I, I just have loved music forever. I don't know that I necessarily have a, a lot of skill or talent in that area, but I thought it would be a fun way to kind of connect the emotions that I was feeling as I was writing each chapter to tie it into a song that you know, really spoke to me or, or in some cases really honestly, you know, inspired me to review the content of that chapter before I had even written it and, and got me to a place where I was willing and able to share it. So I, I, I don't know if it'll be everybody's style. A lot of the music is maybe a little more aggressive and, and punk and metal and stuff like that. I guess I would encourage everybody to, to maybe check it out. And especially if you're willing to do so, you know, read the lyrics of these individual uh, songs, you know, while doing it, if, if you're that interested in it. But I also just love sharing music as well. So if if uh, you're just looking for some new music, please listen. I, I put a wide range of music in there, things like a band called Beartooth, uh, that they have a, a song that I went to a concert 
and they were performing the song and and they're not necessarily a Christian band or anything, but I swear it was one of the most worshipful experiences I've had in the last several years to to be able to experience that. And then other artists that talk about depression and potentially suicidal thoughts and stuff like that. And it's all just, it's beautiful because when it comes through music, there's something special there where it kind of lets down your guard a little bit. You kind of you, you feel as if maybe it doesn't hit you quite squarely in the face until it sneaks up on you. And you start off with Johnny Cash. That just makes it even better. Oh, yeah. God's going to cut you down. That's that's a, a classic <laughs> right. right there and definitely fit with the, uh, you know, the perspective I was working through at the time. Absolutely. So how can folks get a copy of the book and how can they engage with you online, Josh? So the, the easiest way is going to be Amazon, of course. And again, we're targeting a February 4th release. It looks like we should be able to make that happen. So uh, that would mean the world to me if you're you know willing to check it out on that day to go ahead and get a copy. Um, otherwise, you can definitely follow me on Facebook. I have an, an author page and a personal page, actually. So you can add me on both of those. I, I try not to inundate people too much. I know that sometimes that world can get a little overwhelming. So I promise not to spam you and would love for you to follow me. And then I also, I do co-host the the Harbor podcast. If you want to just hear a little bit more of the types of topics and stories that, that we like to engage in as well on there, uh, that would be a great place to catch up with me as well. Uh, but like I said, even if you're just, if, you know, if you want to just have a dialogue, ask more questions, whatever the case may be, I try to be pretty responsive. So feel free to, to message me on Facebook and stuff like that. Friends, we're going to link to Josh's book, Josh's social media, and the Harbor podcast in the show notes to this episode. And uh, I'm so grateful, Josh, for you being with me today and sharing your story. Before we go, if there's somebody listening today who is living a life paralyzed by fear and shame, uh, do you have one final word that you would say to them before we go? You're not alone. You're not alone. You feel alone, and I'm sorry that you feel that way but you are not. Reach out, reach out to a safe person, whether it's somebody already in your community, somebody like Jason or myself. Don't hide. I know it's scary. I know that it seems like it's the the best thing, but it's not. It's, it's going to keep you trapped if you hide. And I promise you that there is grace for you. There's nothing that you could have done again that, that puts you outside of the reach of God. So please be willing to take that step. Again, whether it's with me or Jason, we're here for you. Amen. Josh, I appreciate you, brother. I love you. I love your story. I'm so grateful that you're speaking out. And I, I love your book. And I'm excited to see people getting it in their hands really soon. Excellent. Thank you again for the time. I really appreciate it and for the opportunity to share it with you and, and your community here. You've been listening to the Messy Spirituality Podcast. You can find us on Facebook and visit us online at MessySpirituality.org. You can help spread the word about the podcast by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes and sharing links to each episode on your social media. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode.